Steve. Yeah, you can see the QR code. You can take a picture of it even now if you want to make sure your phones are open and ready as questions may or may not come up. Because we get to cover some pretty cool ground today. We're going to talk about the name of the beast, the mark of the beast, and all this fun stuff that we have in Revelation. Uh, So questions may arise. And I was committed to remembering to talk about the sermon Q&A and not forget it this week, but I'm glad, uh, Steve, you took that out of my hands and remembered for me. I appreciate that. Well, let us study together. You know, one of my favorite times of the year is uh, Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, It becomes very important when we are trying to find a date for our annual general meeting to make sure we do not plan it on Super Bowl Sunday, uh, because otherwise pastor won't be there and that would be awkward. But it's a big party all across North America. I love to host a party at my home. Uh, It also can be a time in which uh, people take advantage of the situation. And last Super Bowl, there was $97 million worth of counterfeit merchandise and tickets that were seized in the Los Angeles area around that Super Bowl weekend. $97 million worth of counterfeit goods. And could you imagine thinking you had bought a ticket to the Super Bowl? And they said, "Uh, no, I'm sorry, that's not valid. That would have been... That would be a disaster. And so you have to know what is true and what is real and what is counterfeit and what is fake. In fact, I was reading an article and there was this quote. He says, uh, Beware of phony online ads for products and tickets, whether they're on websites, social media, or marketplace listings, said NFL Intellectual Property Counsel Bonnie Jarrett. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Someone is selling you something that is fake. Now, Revelation 12 and 13, we're going to spend our time here this morning. It shows that believers, not just sports fans, need to be able to discern what is counterfeit and what is legitimate. And with that in mind, you can open up to Revelation 12 and 13. I'm going to quickly pray for us before we dive in, and then we will study these chapters together. What is counterfeit and what is good? Let's pray. Father, we have already experienced the the blessing that it is to gather in your name, to gather as your family, to to, to gather around the common bond that is you and the saving grace that we have experienced in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we've, we've worshiped you, God, and I pray that we would have done all things in humility, and that humility would continue into, as we learn together, that that There's so many parts of Revelation that maybe we've heard about before or thought about before in a different way. And God, I pray for open minds and hearts. And I pray most importantly that your spirit would guide us into the truth that you have for us this morning. God, I pray that we would just continue to have these conversations and learn together all to worship you. Amen. Revelation 12 and 13, what is counterfeit and what is true? I'm going to read for you Revelation 12. It's a bit longer, uh, but this is... Too good of a passage to not read aloud. I, I, I love reading fantasy books, and even the best fantasy novels I've read can't come quite close to Revelation 12 and 13. So I'll read this for you. You can follow along, and then we'll go through it together. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains from the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne and the woman fled into the wilderness 
where she, was placed, uh, where she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. I need a drink of water after all that. So what is going on? What is going on? This is a great reminder for us that Revelation uses symbolism and imagery to great extent. And there's probably no better passage in Revelation to prove that than this passage. As we see this woman and this dragon and all of this story play out, we know this is not literally happening or has literally happened or will literally happen. This is a symbol of a greater truth. And, and you don't have to take my word for it because John claims as much in Revelation 12. He says, a great sign appeared in heaven. And the sign or the symbol was this woman. She points to something greater than herself. And another great sign appeared in heaven and he saw a dragon, a symbol that points to something greater. And so what do do these signs represent? Who is the woman? She is the faithful remnant of Israel. If you were to go back and read through Genesis or remind yourself of a story, you had this, this character Joseph, this person Joseph, and he He had these dreams, and a few of his dreams are really important. One dream was of all those sheaves of wheat bowing down to him. But another dream also had things bowing down to him. And it was stars and the moon and the sun. And in Genesis 37, 9, the stars were his brothers. There was 11 of them. Joseph would have been the 12th star. The moon was his mother, Rebecca, and the sun was his father, Jacob. And what was Jacob's name changed to? Israel. Stars, 12 stars, moon, sun. This is Israel. And for John, on the other side of the cross of Jesus Christ, this is not ethnic Israel. This is the faithful remnant of Israel, the faithful people of God. And that God has been faithful to since that very beginning of that promise in that old covenant, made true and fulfilled in Jesus Christ and continues in that promise even now. The woman is the faithful remnant of Israel. Now, who is the dragon? Well, this part is easy because John, again, does us a favor and he defines us for us later on in verse 9. The dragon is Satan, the devil. Not just Satan, but the Satan, the deceiver, the ancient serpent, the one 
who even deceived Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and brought sin, ushered sin into the world that very first time. The dragon is a serpent, and dragon and serpent can be fairly interchangeable words or ideas. Uh, so if you see that language change, it's always referring to Satan in this passage. And, and Satan doesn't appear like a, a calm serpent like he did in the Garden of Eden. He is now a powerful dragon with seven heads. And heads mean authority, so he has complete authority, still under the sovereignty of the one who sits on the throne, but he is powerful. And the ten horns now denote strength. Horns equal strength. And so he is a mighty, powerful serpent or dragon. And seven diadems, which mean wealth. He has complete wealth. Authority, power, wealth. Satan has all of these things at his disposal as he wages holy war. And how does he do it? The dragon, Satan, attempts to devour the child of the woman, the faithful remnant of Israel. Now, who is the child? This is my favorite part. The child is Jesus. How can you be so sure? Well, this is a child, a male child, who is to rule with a rod of iron. And there is a well-known messianic psalm, Psalm chapter 2, right at the beginning of that book. In Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 to 9, says this, as soon as I can find it. There we go. Psalm 2, 7-9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So who is the son? Who is ruling with a rod of iron? This is Jesus. But there's another detail, and this makes me so happy when you see these little details. There's another detail here. That the woman is called a sign, and the dragon is called a sign, but the male child is not. He's not a sign. He's not a symbol. Revelation, John is letting us know that he is the real deal. This truly is a male child. He will truly rule and reign. This is Jesus born into history for the sake of you and I and for the sake of God's plan for all of creation. So what do we read here? We are reading the Christmas story. This is a story of the birth of Jesus Christ. Not your typical Christmas story. Not maybe what you expected when you came to church today saying, I hope they don't talk about too many Christmas things too early. You know, I still haven't decided on my Advent series. Maybe I go this direction. Then you can have this fun conversation with your friends from other churches. Well, what are you what, what, what are you doing for an Advent series? Oh, we're doing peace and joy and love. Wait, what is your church doing? <laughs> uh, my pastor went with the pregnant lady and the baby-eating dragon. <laughs> we're, we're a little different over here at Stony Brook Fellowship. No, we're, we're not going to do that for Advent series. Uh, I think we'll come up with a different idea. But truly, this is the story of the birth of Christ. This vision is giving us a reminder of what has already happened. But it also talks not just about the birth, but the whole life of Christ very, very quickly. In fact, the life of Jesus is summarized in one verse. He's born, and then he's caught up to God in his throne. Like that. All the Gospels, boom. One verse. That's what's happening, because this vision is, is giving a very broad view of what has happened and what is happening today. And so, so Satan wanted to defeat this child, but he was unsuccessful. Because this child was born, and then he was victorious, and now he's on his throne, as we read in Revelation 4 and 5. And so then the dragon turns his attention to the woman and she flees to the wilderness where God nourishes her for 1,260 days. An important number 
that we talked about last week. A number that symbolizes the great trouble, that time of tribulation, all of that time that happens between the ascension of Jesus Christ and the end of his first coming, and that time will continue until he comes again. And this passage helps make it even clearer for us because we know now Jesus has been born and now he's been caught up, he's ascended into heaven, and it's at that time in which the woman goes for the 1,260 days. Happens after the first coming of Jesus, continues on until he returns. And so this is an important note. This is something that I think lays the groundwork for how we understand the rest of what we study. Hear me out and disagree with me if you want. Ask me a question. But when I read these chapters, I am convinced that nothing in Revelation 12 and 13 should lead us to believe that, that, that these visions are speaking of specific future events. There's nothing in here in Revelation giving it its own voice that says this will happen in the future. In fact, the greatest um, indicator we have of time is the past, that this is the birth of Jesus and the life of Jesus. And then we have other indications of the present, that this is the time of great trouble that happens after Jesus ascends. And even as we go into the, the imagery of Revelation 13, we'll notice that for John and his readers, a lot of it had to do with Rome which is their present day, which is in the past. And so if we let Revelation speak for itself, we ought to put to the side, for now, this idea that this is pointing to specific future events. That is something that we often read into the passage that I do not believe is here. So in Revelation 12, did you notice that the story is told twice? The story is told and then it's retold. In uh, verses 4 and verse 9, Satan is cast down from heaven. In verse 4, they describe it as he is thrown down and he takes a third of the stars with him, a third of the angels with him. And in verse 9, after holy war, he and his angels are thrown down from heaven. Then later on, he pursues the woman who is Israel. That happens in verse 6. And then later on in the retelling in verse 13. And then lastly, both tellings of the story end with the woman who is protected and nourished in the wilderness for 1,000 260 days in verse 6, and then later for three and a half years in verse 14. That is the same length of time. So there are, there's a telling of the story, and then a retelling of the story, and there's some added detail the second time around. And that draws our attention to what is different about the retelling. Well, the thing that, one of the things that is different really starts in verse 4. Uh, sorry, some of the differences. What, what caused Satan to be cast down from heaven? Well, he was conquered. Not conquered just by Michael and the angels. He was conquered in verse 11. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. The blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony. You see that the cross was not defeat for Jesus. The cross was victory. And when he rose again, he defeated death and defeated Satan once and for all. There, he was defeated by the blood of the Lamb. That's why he's cast down from heaven. But he's also invited his followers, his people, and their testimony into this victory. We get a good glimpse of this in Luke, um, Luke chapter 10, verses 17 and following. This is a story after Jesus has sent out his 72 disciples. They come back to him and report. They come back with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. <laughs> Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
I saw Satan fall like lightning. Jesus has invited us into this ongoing victory of showing that, that Satan has a lot of power, but he is not all powerful. That he has tried to fight, but he has been defeated. And that our witness, as we witness to the blood of the Lamb, can continue to achieve that victory. What a powerful image we find in Revelation and in Luke. And so, the Satan, this dragon, this devil, uh, he, he, he knows he can't defeat the child, and so he goes after the woman who escapes on the, uh, um, the beast or the dragon by two eagles' wings. Which sounds really interesting. It's like, where is he getting this from? Well, again, this is something that's happened previous. I want to read for you, again, a short passage from Exodus 19. And I think I might have quoted from Exodus 19 every single week so far. So it's important to pay attention to this passage in Revelation. But here's what it says. God is speaking. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So, hmm, to bear on eagles' wings and to be nourished in the wilderness, this is another retelling or reminder of the Exodus story. That what God has done before, how he has delivered his people before, is exactly what he will do again. And so we are, in fact, in this wilderness experience, this time of great trouble. We are awaiting that final deliverance to the promised land. And while we wait, God looks after us and he nourishes us and he cares for us. But Satan really is undeterred. He cannot devour the child. He cannot defeat the woman. And so he goes after her offspring. These people are, again, the offspring are defined for us in verse 11. They are those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. It's the church. It's the saints. It's the people of God. The offspring are you and I. Satan has declared war on the church. He's declared war on the church and he is angry. He's ticked off. He is full of wrath. Why? Because he knows his time is short. He knows he's been defeated. He knows that the war is over. And he has been given this time to make as much trouble and to take as many people down with him. And that is his goal. He is full and he is angry, not because he's won, but because he knows he's lost. I love the way Daryl Johnson puts it on a shared quote of his. He says, The suffering of the church in the world is not a sign of Satan's victory. It's a sign of his realization of defeat. He's going down mad and angry and trying to drag down as many people with him. And we need to know that. Revelation is preparing us, equipping us for that. This is war. This is war. And how does Satan wage his war? He does that through the two beasts that we meet in Revelation 13. We're going to do some more reading. Again, I know this is a lot of reading, but I think it will be helpful to keep these images on our mind as we learn from them. Picking up in Revelation 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. 
and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship that everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Here is the call for endurance and faith in the saints. This is the first of two beasts. These beasts that the dragon is using to wage war on the offspring of the woman, the people of God, you and I today. The first beast looks a lot like the dragon, which shouldn't be uh, that, that um, surprising because the dragon has even given this beast some of his power and authority. And so we see ten horns, seven heads, and ten diadems, authority, power, and wealth. This beast has them all at his disposal as he wages war just like the dragon does. This um, beast also bears intentional resemblance to the four beasts that Daniel sees in Daniel 7 in one of his apocalyptic visions. A lion, a bear, a leopard, and a beast with horns. All of these are present in this one beast that is uh, being described by John that he saw. There is a parallel there. And this beast also carries a mortal wound that was healed. A mortal wound that was healed. That's always shared at the outset. You're thinking, well, what does this have to do with counterfeit and real? Well, now we start to see this imagery because what the beast has and what he's showing is counterfeit resurrection. He is mimicking the lamb that was slain. He is showing a a deceitful representation of the true power that is the lambs and the lambs alone. It is fake. It is false. It is counterfeit. And yet people worship the dragon and the beast, not out of love, not out of devotion, hopefully the ways that we worship the lamb and the one who's on the throne. No, they are worshiping the beast out of fear. You can hear their hearts cry. Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? The power seems overwhelming. The authority seems ultimate. Uh, The mortal wound seems true. Who can overcome the beast? We can't fight against it. We're powerless, so we may as well fall in line. We may as well worship. We may as well follow. You can think of it as worship through the path of least resistance or the path of self-preservation. And this beast was given authority and permission to blaspheme and to conquer for 42 months. Given being the operative word meaning this beast does not have ultimate power or authority or wealth. It was given to him. It was given to him because there is still one who sits on the throne. We must never read Revelation 13 if we forget about Revelation 4. There is an ultimate power, a seat of power in the universe, and it is not the dragon. It is not the beast. It is the one who sits on the throne. It is the lamb who is slain. And this beast was given by them this ability to blaspheme for 42 months. And 42 months is the same amount of time as 1,260 days and three and a half years. They've told this time frame in three different ways, but all of it is the same for how long the woman and her offspring are being nourished, for how long the beast is blaspheming is the same amount of time. That great time of trouble of which John and his listeners are a partner of and we are a partner of today. During this time period, The beast makes war on the saints and he conquers them. That's the very same language that we encountered in Revelation 11, 7, that that the beast would arise out of the pit when the testimony of the witnesses was was done and the beast would come and would, would, would make war on them and conquer them and kill them. He's doing the same thing to the saints here, which is further reason for us to believe that the witnesses represent the saints in the church in Revelation 11. And so what do the people do? 
How are we not to be overwhelmed with this vision of the beast? The call of the people of God is for endurance and faith. And I love it. John does not leave his listeners hanging in the wind. He says, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This will not be easy. This is going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. There will be suffering involved. But the war has been won. Endure. Believe. Don't retaliate. Hang on. You are on the winning side. Even if you lose your life, you are still on the winning side. We don't read Revelation 13 unless we remind ourselves of Revelation 4 and 5. The cry of the martyrs and the promise that one day all of these things will be put right. And so if we are trying to interpret what this beast represents or symbolizes, it would have been an easy answer for John and his uh, listeners and hearers in the first century world. This would have been Caesar and it would have been Rome. It certainly is referring to a state or a nation. So I mentioned earlier that the, that the beast here represents an intentional similarity to the beasts of Daniel. And in Daniel, we are fairly confident that the four beasts of Daniel represent four kingdoms or nations or states, likely Babylon, Persia, Mede, and Greece in the context of Daniel. And so if, if they meant nations back in Daniel and they use the same imagery in Revelation, we can be fairly confident it's referring to a nation or a state here in Revelation. And for John and everybody else in the seven churches, that state was Rome, and that beast was Caesar. The state was Rome pressuring Christians to compromise on their belief and compromise their devotion to the Lamb and to participate in that cult of emperor worship. That was the pressure. The, all of the power and authority and wealth that the beast had been given by the dragon was put on to the church to compromise their beliefs. The nation, the state, was putting that pressure on them. But the beast's authority Power and enthronement are counterfeit. They are not the true thing, the real deal. Unlike the slain lamb, this mortal wound was not something that was a true sign of ultimate authority. Only one has true power and authority. So the call for us as Christians and for the, all the people of God from Revelation 13 is to beware of counterfeit power. It might look true, but it's not true. Who can stand against it? It seems overwhelming. That is a lie. There is a greater power. You do not need to give in. You do not need to compromise. You do not need to bow a knee. There is one who is more powerful still. And so we are called to be wary of when the state and those in power do put pressure on us to compromise our beliefs. Okay, now I'm going to call a little sidebar here. Time out. I don't want to do this, but I think we have to do this in order to have an honest conversation. And I'm going to bring up COVID again, which I am loath to do. But during COVID and the accompanying restrictions, it gave us all time to think about whether or not the state was putting pressure on the church to compromise who we were. That was a huge question, and rightfully so. We have never really undergone that type of situation before. And people interpreted it differently. Some people said yes, other people said no. And I think it's valid to have different opinions and different interpretations of what happened. I just want to share from you my uh, my own experience and the reason why I felt a certain way. Uh, so we have competing uh, writings in the New Testament. We have Peter and Paul saying, submit to the emperor. Okay. And then we have John writing in Revelation that says the emperor is a beast. <laughs> that is, a, that is a, a pawn of Satan. How do we put these two things together? 
Well, we do believe the Bible teaches that, that the government has been placed there by God with a specific mandate. And when they operate in that mandate, we are to submit to them and to be good citizens. But when that mandate is stepped over, and when they use that power and authority that even God has given them now to put pressure on us to compromise our beliefs, now we are living in a Revelation 13 situation. So for me, when we walked through COVID, I felt, and I recommended to our leadership team as we made together decisions, I said, I believe we should submit because I do not believe that we are being pressured to change our beliefs or our commitment to our faith. I do not believe the church is being targeted, and I believe this is within the mandate, God-given mandate, that the government's been given. That was my opinion, and you're okay to hold a different one. But that's not to say that we don't experience some of these pressures that Revelation reminds us of today in Canada. In fact, I know these pressures are here. It started a few years ago, and all of a sudden, if you wanted to take out uh, to, to get a grant for a summer job, you had to have a certain set of values and beliefs. And if you didn't hold to the government's set of values and beliefs, then you did not have access to that grant money. That was the state leveraging their power to affect what we believe to be most true. The same thing today when we look at a situation with crisis pregnancy centers and other pro-life organizations that are being actively pressured by the government to change what they believe. This is the spirit of Revelation 13. We do see it in action. And this is a time in which we need to stand and say, hey, this is not good. This is not right. And this is a time when we hold fast and we endure and we say, all life is sacred. I follow the lamb that was slain. I'm committed in my devotion and discipleship to Jesus. And we encourage others who are caught in the crosshairs of some of the pressure that people in authority can bring unfairly into the conversation. There we go. I hope that this doesn't get pulled offline. <laughs> what about the second beast? Well, the second beast is similar to the first I'm not going to read it for you because we're running short on time, but I want you to follow along in Revelation 13, verses 11 and following. This beast is described differently. It has two horns like a lamb, which is different than the first beast, but it sounds familiar because, again, it's mimicking the lamb that was slain and the horns that were found on Jesus in the vision that John had of him. Again, mimicking, counterfeit. But while it appears like a lamb, this beast speaks like a dragon. What does the dragon do? It's full of slander and deceit and lies. This beast serves as an enforcer, making people worship the first beast. And in order to do this, it uses signs and wonders and miracles, even like Elijah calling fire down from heaven. Well, who can deny that type of evidence? Surely there must be true power and authority there. Surely this must be all that we need in order to follow the way that the beast wants us to go. But these signs were also counterfeit. Unfortunately, they are also persuasive. The people of the world are pressured into worshiping an image of the beast, and if they do not worship, then they are slain. And this, again, should transport us back to Daniel, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or as I learned them in Sunday school, Rack, Shaq, and Benny, <laughs> were standing there, and they needed to bow down to worship this image, or they were thrown into the fiery furnace. The same pressure being extended now to the whole world, and to the Christians in the second beast. And for those that bow down, the, those that give in, they receive the mark of the beast. And here we get to the good stuff. You're like, okay, here we go. What's the mark of the beast? Well, let's read this passage so that this is fresh in our minds as we go over what it may or may not be. 
Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has that mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. The mark and the number and the name. What is the mark of the beast? Well, John says this is something he saw that would be marked on the right hand or the forehead of a person who would follow the beast. And it carries with it certain economic implications that if you don't have this mark, no one can buy or sell. Now, again, I would press pause on this idea that it refers to a specific event in the future. Let's think again of of our ground rule of how this would have made sense to John and the people that he addressed this letter to. How would this have made sense? Well, there is one possibility. It may have referred to union markings. So often there would be merchant guilds or different types of economic unions in the Roman Empire. And and what you would do is you would have a little mark or a crest or something like that. And this would allow you to participate in this union or in this guild. And and, and unfortunately, so much of this worship of the emperor and the cult of this would would get into these situations where they would eat uh, food that was that was um, sacrificed to idols. And no Christian could do this. No Christian could partake in these meals. No Christian could partake in any part of emperor worship. And so many Christians in that time were then forced to leave those guilds or those unions, and there was deep economic consequences for their commitment to the Lamb and to denying emperor worship. That is one plausible explanation of what those economic consequences could be for the people of that time of that time. But this mark, or the lack of the mark, will cost them something in the world. But I think the truth is that, once again, this mark mimics another mark that we found in Revelation. Everything we've seen in the imagery of the beast so far has been this counterfeit mimic or representation of Jesus, and the mark of the beast is no different. In fact, what we just read, those last few verses in Revelation 13, if we keep reading, what's the next thing we read in Revelation 14? Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. These images, forget the chapter break, that wasn't there when John wrote his letter. These images are supposed to sit side by side. You have those who bear the mark of the beast on their right hands or their foreheads, and then against that, contrasted against that, are those who have the mark of the Lamb. also written on their foreheads. <clears throat> Just as the people of God, the 144,000, the people of God are sealed with the name of the Lamb and the God written on their foreheads, we know this to be symbolic. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We have that presence within us. We belong to God. Our inheritance is assured. We don't have a physical mark on our foreheads, nor will we ever. Just so, the people of the beast are sealed with the mark of the beast on their hands and their foreheads, also symbolic. So church, I'll tell you this, the mark of the beast is not about microchips or skin tags from vaccines or a cashless society or any of those other things that you may hear different preachers say. It is about being marked, sealed, stamped with the character of either the lamb that was slain or the beast at his counterfeit. It's about allegiance. It's about who you belong to. It's about what character you are following and what character is forming you. Who do you belong to? So don't worry about the mark of the beast. Know that you, when you place your trust in Jesus, are sealed already 
with the name of the Lamb and the God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it is finished. So then the name of the beast, or the number, what is it? Well, the number and the name, we can have this play on, on letters and numbers. This was very common in the ancient world. The number that we're given is 666. Um, and this very, um, very likely could be called uh, something called gematria. And gematria was, in the ancient world, using uh, numbers to correspond to letters of the alphabet, or the other way around, that, that letters would correspond to certain numbers. And so you could uh, numerically spell out somebody's name if you had the key to this puzzle. And so a lot of commentators believe that the number 666, if it was indeed gematria, could be used to refer to Nero Caesar. That is a, that is a, a certain uh, possibility that this could refer to Nero Caesar. Now, we've said this is likely a letter written during Domitian's reign, about 25 years after Nero. And why would it be Nero? Well, Nero was the one who began intense persecution of Christians, even though Domitian took it a step farther uh, we, we, we know that Nero lit his garden by having flaming living torches of Christians crucified and then lit on fire, and that would light his garden, and he'd walk around in the garden. And that is a fairly beast-like quality. And so John, again, is, is, is coding this, and he's coding it because all of this language is meant to be understood by the people of God, but not by the authorities. So this could be a way of him saying that, that Rome and Caesar is this beast for us, and you know it to be true, and so do I. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Even if this is a reference to Nero, and I think there's a good likelihood that it is, there's still a bigger picture here. We need to take our eyes not so much on the specific person that John might be referring to, but again, understanding that the time of trouble is still here today. What is the bigger picture that's still found in the number? You see, seven is the number of completion, fullness, as is three. So God's number, the threefold God, would be seven, seven, seven. God is completely complete. Three in one, perfect. Now the beast number is six, 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 which means completely incomplete. He's like God. He looks like him. He mimics him. He has a lot of power like him, but he's not quite and what can be a very convincing argument that this is not necessarily talking just about a specific person is in a very small detail. If you were to read this in Greek, then there, that last article that you read would be missing. This is what the Greek would say. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. And his number is 666. There's no A in the Greek transcript. It's just the number of man. Could be a man. It could also be man in general. I believe Revelation is not looking for a description of a particular beast, but the character of the beast, who is imperfect, who is counterfeit, who is human, and who is ultimately not worthy of our worship. So the second and final warning we have here is to beware of counterfeit worship. Do not be swayed by deception, by signs and wonders, or anything else that draws you away from the worship of God and from the Lamb. And whereas in the first beast, in that, beast, in that case, it was the nation and, and, and the state or those in authority who are putting pressure on people to, to not worship the Lamb, now it, is, now it is religion. Now it is people who say, I am a person of faith. Now we're talking about false prophets and false teachers that can perform these signs and these wonders and ultimately lead people astray. Which is why we have Jesus say this in Matthew 7, 15. He gives us the way in which we can know and discern. 
He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So don't listen to me or anyone else because we're persuasive. Don't listen to anyone because they're charismatic or can have a large following. Test, discern, see. See what the fruits are. Is is this life-giving? Is this drawing people closer into the worship of the lamb that was slain, of the one who sits on the throne? Is this giving life and liberty and hope? Or is it leading to fear and, and judgment and paranoia and darkness? It's by the fruit, not by the signs that we know what is being spoken to be true. See, the beast appeared to be a lamb, but it spoke as a dragon, revealed himself to be false. The proof is in the pudding. Uh, It's in the fruit. Beware of counterfeit worship. So I'd conclude by saying this. We are not here under any pressure by the state or any religious institutions to, to participate in the emperor cult. And that's great. It's wonderful. You know, our society hasn't gone that far yet. But we still have pressure. We still have temptation for idol worship in our life. They're more subtle temptations, but they are very real in our lives too. So if we are to beware of counterfeit worship, we need to know that it does not sneak up in our own lives. A few years ago, I led a Bible study in my small group called Gods at War by Kyle Eidelman. And his theory was very simple. He says, I think idol worship is still alive and well today. It just looks different. His idols were the idol of pleasure, romance, sex, money, and power. And they all vie for our attention. Not just that, they all vie for our devotion. And they can give us great things and wonderful things and speak to us in ways that appeal to us. And maybe there are some signs and wonders that come and says, yeah, this is the way to go. But they are all counterfeit worship. So I want to leave you with a few diagnostic questions. You might be sitting there thinking, Pastor, there's no way I worship idols. And I'm not trying to say that you are. But I do think it's good for us to step back and ask ourselves these questions. And I'm going to actually post these questions online after the service if you want to go back and read them. Here it is. What are you disappointed with? What do you sacrifice time and money for? What do you worry about? Where do you go when you get hurt? What makes you mad? What do you dream about? And what brings you the most joy? And whose applause do you long for? Whose applause do you long for? Because we are called in Revelation to hold fast and endure. And the applause that we should be um, seeking is when we can one day stand before the throne and hear the words, Well done good and faithful servant. So Revelation 12 and 13 give us a type of unholy trinity, mimicking the truth and counterfeit in every way. The dragon in Revelation 12 mimics God in Revelation 4. The beast from the sea in Revelation 13 mimics the lamb in Revelation 5. And the beast from the earth mimics the work of the Holy Spirit and the witnesses in Revelation 11, an unholy counterfeit trinity. These visions that John receives are not designed to be decoded as specific future events. That's not the purpose. They are designed to call us to have endurance and faith today, to 
Endure the spiritual attack of counterfeit power and counterfeit worship. Keep your eyes and your hearts open and hold fast to what is true. Let's pray. God, you are good. Your word is good. And I pray that we would keep these conversations going as we learn and we think and we discern together today. God, I pray that you would let us know that, that as your people, you, you do care for us, that you do nourish us, you do protect us, but that doesn't keep us safe from suffering. We know that the church is under attack. God, I pray that we would hold fast and endure knowing that the battle has been won by the Lamb that was slain and all else is fake news. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.